Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for the gift of our bodies, of relationships, of intimacy, and every good thing that you have given us, Lord, from the very beginning of creation. We ask, Lord, that you would use this time that we open up your word to form us. Because, God, we don't want to just come in, be entertained by a sermon, and move on. Lord, we want to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. We want to let truth get into us and shape us so that we can live our lives in a way that more reflects you and is free from the bondage of sin. So Jesus, come and speak to us. Holy Spirit, come and take these words and breathe on them and give us power to live a new way. In Jesus' name, amen. Genesis chapter 2. Hopefully you're there in your Bibles. It's page 2 of the Bible. Um, Now the first story of the Bible is really the first story, period. It's how everything that is came into being. The beginning of the Bible is actually much less a story of, you know, creation and how everything was created out of nothing and much more a story of God ordering all of the universe, all of the forces of the universe, all of the pieces of the universe together in such a way that it creates an environment for the flourishing of his image bearers, human beings. And so that's where we're going to pick it up in Genesis chapter 2, beginning in verse 7, uh, where, where God gets to work on humans. Here's what we read. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living being. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east in Eden. And there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground. Trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Let's get down to verse 15. The Lord took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. The Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone, so I'll I'll make a helper suitable for him. Down in verse 20, but for Adam, no suitable, suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. Imagine this with me. You know, when we, when we read this story, we tend to read it from such a like, high level, like we're like a bird's eye view, sort of spanning all of creation. But put yourself in the story. Imagine with me opening your eyes for the very first time as one of the first two human beings on earth. And as you look around and you sort of see everything that's around you, you see that you are put in this beautiful and lush garden. You have everything that you need and everything that you could ever want. You have food and security and safety, and you find that there is total deep contentment in your heart. And on the right, you look over and you see this companion 
who has been created and is perfectly suited to be your helper, that you can work together, your co-equal partners uh, in whatever this whole new life thing is that you find yourself in. And you find that you have this total emotional safety with this person. You are completely loved. And then you look to the left and you see God is right there. That God himself actually comes to hang out with you in this garden space every day, walking and talking with you, sharing all the things of his heart, and just sort of telling you who he is and who you are before him. And then one morning you wake up to this perfect, beautiful sunrise over Eden. And God is there and he says, um, I've got some stuff that I want you to do. I've got some commands actually to help you order your life and fulfill the created purpose that I've designed for you. He says, I didn't create you to just frolic naked through the field, as fun as that is. There's time for that later. I've actually created you to partner with me to do meaningful co-creative work. So here's what I need from you. I've got a couple quick things that I just need to make sure that you know. First, I have this tree and it's in the middle of the garden. You'll know it. It's beautiful. The fruit on it is awesome. And if you eat that fruit, you're going to live forever. So make sure that you get some of that fruit each day. Uh, it'll really help you. Second, there's another tree that's right next to it. It's called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And that's a tree that I don't want you to eat. If you eat that fruit, you will be cut off from the life that I have designed for you to live. So stay away from that one. Clear? Okay, good. Third, I've given you a spouse who is perfectly suited for you. And the call for you is to be faithful to that person and to love them and to tend to them in the same way that I've called you to tend to the rest of creation. Fourth, I need you to have lots and lots of babies. But here's the cool thing. I'm going to make it really fun. And then fifth, finally, you have a job. Your job is this. You are to have dominion over everything that I have made, and I want you to take the beauty and the shalom, the perfection of this garden that you find yourself in, and I want you to spread that all over the earth. And I want you to have babies, and I want you to train them to see all of the goodness and beauty and to do the same kind of work. And I want them to walk with me just the same way that you walk with me. And together, as co-creators, we're going to take the shalom and perfection. We're going to make the entire world like that. Pretty cool job, huh? Like, who would want to sign up for that job? Yeah, me too. And I think that it's important that we understand that this is the beginning of the story, the very first thing that we see in the Bible. We need to get the beginning of the story right. You see, the Bible opens with God's love and his generosity. He desires humans to flourish. He desires you, as a human being, to flourish, what the Bible calls shalom, which is more than just the idea of a lack of conflict. It's the idea of fulfilling everything that is in your, sort of, in, in your sphere, fulfilling it to its created purpose. From the very beginning, God has been about your joy and your delight. He created you for joy and enjoyment. He created your body and your sexuality for delight. And God designed all of creation to be ordered in such a way as to maximize that joy and that delight with him. You see, God is not a dictator or a killjoy. 
He doesn't put rules around us so that we can, just because he wants us to have limits and to, be, and to suffer, everything that God has ordered has been for the purpose of human flourishing. And, but you see, what we, what we see in Genesis chapter 3 is that the very first lie that was ever spoken in creation is this lie. It's the lie that says, God is holding out on you. God doesn't want you to have something that you really want. God is withholding from you and robbing you of joy. And how often have we heard this sentiment in our culture, or if we're honest, even within our own hearts, where you're like, I really want this thing, but it violates God's command. And you're like, why would God want to keep this from me? God must not want me to be fully happy. And sadly, our first parents believed this lie, and they sinned against God. And the moment that they sinned, we read this, Genesis 3, verse 7. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Before our first parents, Adam and Eve, had sinned, Adam and Eve were not blind to each other's bodies. They fully saw each other. You could say that they saw each other more deeply than anyone has ever seen another person. They looked at each other with what Rich Velotis calls sacred and sensual eyes, communing joyfully with each other. They were exposed, but they were not ashamed. They were vulnerable, but they were not self-conscious. They, they were laid bare without the need for self-protection. They saw each other. But when sin entered the world, it says that their eyes were opened. And ironically, they never saw clearly again. Isn't it interesting that sin actually opens eyes and at the same time veils beauty? Sin distorts their vision. And now they see with a broken vision of human fallenness. Sin cuts off the deeper vision with which we used to be able to see each other. You see, sin doesn't create desire, nor does sin destroy desire. Sin disorders our desires. It twists it. But in Christ, the good news of the gospel is that God is reordering our desires so that once again we can experience the joy and the delight that he has created for us. And so when we're talking about sexual wholeness, we are basically acknowledging the fact that sexuality is incredibly powerful. And God invites us to fully enjoy this gift, but he creates healthy boundaries around it so that we can enjoy it as he has designed it. The clear and unambiguous teaching of the Bible is that sex is meant for a specific context. It is meant to be enjoyed between a man and a woman in the covenantal commitment of marriage. And even though this is God's design, if we're honest, our human brokenness leads us to follow all kinds of other disordered desires. And God calls us to submit our sexuality to him for our joy and for his glory. And I know that this is not easy and, and that for many of us we struggle with submitting this particular part of ourselves um, to the will of God. 
And then when we, when we fail to submit ourselves to the will of God, then we carry all kinds of shame and brokenness, and it just becomes this spiral where sexuality seems to have this power to twist us up in ways that most other sin doesn't seem to, to do. But the church is called to be a community that walks with each other in grace. We can be comfortable talking about this in, our, in this room because every single person that is in this room has sinned sexually. And no one's sexual sin is any more disqualifying than anyone else's. And we want to walk this out together. No matter what your personal struggle is or what you've done in the past, we are glad that you are here and we believe that Jesus is here to bring healing, what the prophet Marvin Gaye called sexual healing. No one... <laughs> I should have cut that one. Um, what we're talking about is reordering our desires. And reordering our desires is a process of formation. There is a disproportionate formational power to sex. And the way that the world handles sex, if we are honest with ourselves, is eating people alive. And sadly, statistics show that American Christians are participating just as much with the worldly system as anyone else. Um, and you, you, can, you can see it everywhere. You can see this discipleship of sexuality that is just like bending people in all kind of unconscious ways. Even recently, Instagram coming out with basically announcing that they are moving from being a photograph, you know, like sharing a social media site into a video entertainment content site where they are discipling young people with tons of sexual videos, twisted sexual videos of 15-second bites that are not long enough for any kind of nuance. They just unconsciously shape us. We have similar rates in the church of porn use, premarital sex, and divorce as the rest of the country. And it is destroying followers of Jesus. It's producing shame, it's breaking down marriages and families, and it is leading to all kinds of confusion about our own humanity and sexuality and gender and relationships. There is so much power in sexuality. For example... <coughs> Excuse me. For example, pornography is one of the most destructive forces that permeates our world today. I say that, I want to say that boldly and clearly. Pornography is one of the most destructive forces in the world today. It is curated and created often through practices of human enslavement and sex trafficking. It is, <coughs> it is in, uh, enjoyed by younger and younger and younger people and creates all kinds of patterns of addiction. And it leads to the breakdown of marriages and families left and right. Here are some heartbreaking statistics. <coughs> Boys ages 12 to 17 are the number one users of pornography today. The average age of first exposure to pornography is 11 years old. But many studies are actually saying that upwards of 46% of eight-year-olds have already seen internet pornography. But on the other hand, 75% of parents believe that their children have not seen pornography. 68% of men who attend church are regular viewers of pornography. 
means seven out of 10 men who would even maybe call this church home would wrestle with this. 76% of young Christian adults are actively searching for porn online. Pornography increases marital infidelity by more than 300%. 56% of American divorces involve one person having an obsessive interest in porn. And 30% of Pornhub's uh, traffic is by women. We have to come to grips with the fact that pornography is no longer just a men's problem. It is increasingly an everyone's problem. It is a problem for men and women and tragically children. A few years ago, I was uh, volunteering each week in a middle school classroom. I was just there to kind of basically maintain order. I was like a bouncer in a middle school classroom. And I remember being completely shocked one day when while the teacher was uh, teaching art, uh, one of the students had a phone and was holding it underneath their desk and was looking at porn during the classroom hour. And it shocked me and it freaked me out. And then a couple weeks later, it happened again with a different kid. And then the next week, another kid. And before I knew it, I realized that this was a problem that I was seeing like across the entire classroom. Now, by God's grace, my personal exposure to pornography is really limited. Um, I grew up in a different era, uh, the era of the shared family computer that was in the, uh, that was in the living room. And so uh, it wasn't my young holiness and my deep commitment to Jesus that kept me from porn. It was a terror that my mom was going to catch me. Um, I did not feel like I would be able to cover my tracks. And yet still, as a young man, I was exposed to pornography from a terribly young age. Um, one of my grandpas, not, not the grandpa who's a part of this church, to be clear, uh, had, um, had uh, uh, posters of naked women all over his garage. And we would go over for family get-togethers very frequently. And so as a young man, I just found myself going back for another soda out in the garage over and over again. My parents were worried, wow, Marshall really loves soda. I wonder what's going on there. And, um, and then, of course, in teen years, you just are exposed by friends and everything else. By God's grace, I can say that in my adult years, I live free of that addiction. But I know that many, many, many struggle with it. And now we have a generation of people who have immediate, unlimited access to HD, HD videos in their pocket 24-7. And so this last year of increased social isolation, stats are showing that it has led to an explosion of internet porn use. And we know that people, even in this room, are not immune. And this has immense power in forming us. In 1 Corinthians 6, Paul writes, flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. In context, the Apostle Paul is talking about participating in sort of rampant cult the rampantly normal uh, cultural phenomenon of, of temple prostitution. 
but he says this really in- interesting phrase in verse 18. He, sa- he says the words, sins against their own body. Whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. And this phrase carries this meaning. It means to distort our personality or ourselves. When it comes to our sexuality, the way that we live it out doesn't just shape our behavior, but it actually changes who we are. It makes us a different kind of person. No one is born a pervert, but through the indulgence of different kinds of sexual sin, a person becomes perverted. And that is exactly what he's saying here, is that this kind of sin distorts our personalities or ourselves. It affects our formation. In Jesus' most famous collection of teachings, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. You see, when we indulge in sort of our disordered sexuality, it distorts how we see and relate to other people. Jesus calls lusting after another person adultery of the heart. He is making a statement here that the betrayal of adultery is in full force when we give ourselves to another person, even when it's in our imagination. Lust is an enemy of building this this beautiful and harmonious community of relationships with each other. It's a heart-level dehumanizing of another person where we transform our brothers and sisters into objects for self-gratification, and it affects how we relate to each other. It affects how we see each other and understand each other. I think that historically, if we're honest, the church has done a pretty poor job of equipping people to connect their sexuality with their spirituality, often going so far as to place those two things at odds with each other. But what we see from the earliest pages of Genesis is, uh, and, and all the way through the Bible is a deep connection between our bodies and our spiritual lives. At the core of this relationship between sexuality and spirituality is desire and longing. It's passion. So what do we do with our sexual desires and longings? It it reveals a lot about what we believe about God. In her book, Redeeming Sex, Deborah Hirsch writes this. She says, spirituality can be described as a vast longing that drives us beyond ourselves in an attempt to connect with, to probe, and to understand our world. And beyond that, it is the inner compulsion to connect with the eternal other, which is God. Essentially, spirituality is a longing to know and be known by God on physical, emotional, psychological, and spiritual levels. This is why we are called to worship God with all that we are, body, mind, and soul. She goes on, sexuality can be described as the deep desire and longing that drives us beyond ourselves in an attempt to connect with, to understand that which is other than ourselves. Essentially, 
It is a longing to know and be known by other people on a physical, emotional, psychological, and spiritual levels. It thus forms part of what it means to love others as we love ourselves. Our deepest longings as human beings are to be in relationship with God and our neighbor. This really and simply is the human condition. What she's saying here is that sexuality is so much more than just a physical experience. It's about knowing and being known. Just as spirituality at its core is not about ascending to some higher truths, it's about knowing God and being known by him. And so because of this, we can be sexually whole in all stations of life, no matter where you find yourself today. In singleness, in marriage, in youth, in old age, whether you are gay or you are straight, regardless of circumstances, we can experience sexual wholeness in Christ as we submit our desires to him and live in deep relationship with other people. Amen? You guys following me? Okay. So with the rest of our time this morning, I want to offer three practices, three things that we can do to, to form ourselves sexually into sort of the experience that we're talking about of sexual wholeness. The first practice is the practice of confession. When I say confession, I'm not referring to sitting in a booth with a priest. I don't have time to listen to all of your guys' stuff. Uh, I'm kidding. I'm sorry. Uh, and I'm not even talking about like having an accountability group. I'm talking about beginning with being honest with yourself, with God, and with another person that you trust. And, and if we're like, just take a survey of what your normal day is like. On any given day, we are bombarded with temptation to objectify other people. Many of us feel trapped in cycles of compulsive behavior, getting, you know, just like gritting our teeth, trying to resist our sort of like physical urges at times. We carry scripts from our past or from our family of origin that inform the way that we relate to other people who we would find sexually attractive. And then we carry the weight of shame and it causes us to hide from God and others. And so when we hold on to our secrets and we hide our shame, like neuroscience shows that our bodies begin to like, uh, have, have symptoms that manifest the poison that we have stored in our mind and are weighed down by. And like our first parents, Adam and Eve, our sin causes us to withdraw and to hide in shame. And the way that we combat this is by bringing it out into the open. When we are brave enough to be honest about what we've done or what we've indulged in, that is when the power of God is released to bring healing and freedom to you. It begins with honesty. In um, 1 John chapter 1, we read, this is the message we have heard from him and declared to you. God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful 
and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. What an incredible promise that when we confess our sin, God is faithful to cleanse us to purify us, to forgive us, to heal us of everything that we have indulged in that is seeking to destroy us. True freedom comes from walking in the light with each other. We were created from the beginning to live naked and unashamed. Now, that is not to say that there won't be consequences for, for what is revealed. Confession isn't a get-out-of-jail-free card. There may be real feelings of broken trust. There may be a difficult road of healing ahead in your relationships. But we have to remember that it's not the honesty that brings the pain. It's the sin that brought the suffering. Honesty is the first step toward healing what sin has been destroying. So the question is, who can you meet up with and share what's been hiding under the surface? Who in your life can you be honest with and who can be honest with you? I want to encourage you to think about those people. Set up a phone call or, or um, you know, meet up sometime this week around a campfire. Wait, can't do a campfire. Meet up with them around coffee or something else and begin the journey toward wholeness by being real with each other and be honest with God, most importantly. Bring your sin to him in repentance. Invite the Holy Spirit to bring conviction of sin so that you can be led into healing. Practice number one, the practice of confession. Practice number two, the practice of social bonding, um, which is basically just cultivating a deeper relationship with other people. Because our deepest desire is to, be, is to know and be known by God and by other people, Our wholeness isn't just about the act or the experience of sex. In our world today, we put off marriage until later and later. I heard a statistic recently that said that the median age of marriage in America now today is 29 years old, which it just gets bumped back later and later and later. And in an attempt to satisfy the longing for intimacy, connection, and vulnerability, we often rush to the act of sex prematurely, attaching ourselves spiritually and emotionally to other people without the security of the covenantal vows of marriage. And so for this practice of social bonding, we can just look at the life of Jesus himself. Jesus was fully God and fully man, and he lived out all of his life as a single man with all of the desires that a single man has. And Jesus was in no way sexually deficient. He had these deep relationships. He gave and received intimacy, connection, and vulnerability. He shared his life with his close friends. Um, He feasted at parties. He received love. He confessed his weaknesses. He revealed intimate details about himself to other people. And he physically touched and was physically touched by people. And so when you look at Jesus, you can't say that he was deficient in any way. He lived sexually whole as a single person. And so all of us, whether we're single or we're married or we're divorced or we're widowed or we're gay, need to live connected to others in life-giving relationships. 
that is part of, that is a significant part of what it means to live a sexually whole life. Connecting our spirituality and our sexuality means coming out of ourselves to connect with God deeply and intimately and to experience intimacy in other relationships. It's to connect with God with all that we are as well as to connect to other human beings. So the question is, who in your life do you have this kind of relationship with? Who fills your tank up when you are with them? Who goes beyond small talk and really knows you at a heart level? Not that there's anything wrong with small talk. I love small talk. It's my favorite. The practice of social bonding is about forging intimate friendships, knowing and being known. And this is a process. It's not something that you can assume in any of your friendships off the bat. These kind of friendships are uncommon in our world today. And you may not feel like you are experiencing this with anyone right now, and that's okay. Our relationships are deepened progressively as we join um, or create opportunities for connection with other people. So if you are longing for this kind of social bonding, my encouragement to you would be to join a small group. Or we're going to have a church beach day in just a couple of weeks. Come to that and see who you meet. Come and, and integrate you know, yourself into the life of the church and see how God opens doors for deeper connection with other people. We are called to be a family and to be friends. Amen? And I want to say that there are a lot of single people that are part of this church community. And it's easy um, for me as a pastor who is married and for others who are married to sort of assume that everyone else just has, has like deep connection with other people. But I want to say that our our call from God is to integrate each and every member of this church into the family of God and make sure everyone is known and loved and attended to. Amen? Finally, the last, the last uh, practice is the practice of making love. Um, my favorite one, to be honest. The practice of making love. Love making takes practice. A lot of it. The cultural myth of our time is that sex should be effortless, flawless, and mind-blowing every single time. And it's in our movies, we see it in romantic comedies, we see it in our novels, in our porn-saturated world. In every magazine that you see on a magazine rack, I don't care, like it could be field and stream, it will have somewhere in there six tips for the best sex of your life, guaranteed. And so when sex is reduced to a physical act, it's really all about performance. But lovemaking, what God called us to be about in the covenants of marriage, is all about expression. It requires all of our being, and it takes a lot of practice. And here's the cool thing. Lovemaking doesn't just happen in the bedroom. It can happen anywhere. I should rephrase that. Um, I'm talking about the commitment to sacrificially love each other at times other than when we're having sex. Love making is cultivating deep intimacy with your spouse through serving, through those late night conversations with a mug of tea where you, the house is finally quiet enough for you to be able to share what's going on in your heart. It's, it's cultivating intimacy through playfulness and laughter and having inside jokes just between the two of you. It's through reading poetry. It's through romance. It's through vulnerability. 
It's using our words to touch our spouse at a soul level. It's the non-sexual physical touch. It's the gift of time. It's whatever your deep love language is. It's pouring that out into the other person. Sex is so much more than just a physical act. It is a deep communication between two people. It is the mingling of souls. And so when you have sex, you are reminding each other that you are seen and known, that you are expressing that this person is the object of your desire and your love. It's giving and receiving that deep love. So the question is, how will you and your spouse practice making love? How will you move from a performance mentality or thinking of it as a need for physical release and instead consider how you can cultivate deep intimacy with your husband or wife? How will you make love outside of the bedroom as well as inside of the bedroom? Question, do you and your spouse talk about it? Have you been able to be open with each other at a heart level? Do you express your desires and your needs and your fears? It's okay if you are not there, if that's not what you're experiencing right now, or maybe if you know, you're going through one of those seasons of life where you're just in a lull. But as we said, lovemaking takes practice, lots and lots of it. So are you practicing it? This is like the best application sermon I've ever given for married people, I suppose. All right, we're gonna bring it home. Finally, it's important for us to remember that sex, it, is created to be sacramental. It's a physical act that points us to a deeper reality of God's loving presence with us. Lovemaking is manifesting our union with each other and it points to a greater reality, God's union with the world through Jesus' shed blood on the cross. As we love each other, naked and unashamed, as we live into these deep, friendships and intimate relationships as we demonstrate the we are demonstrating the vulnerable and free faithful and unceasing love that God pours out to us through Jesus sexual wholeness is an embodied faith it is not disconnecting my my body or my humanity from my spirituality it is fully integrating it our relationship with Jesus is not just an abstract idea or positive thinking. It is something that we live out physically. And so if God can be present through things like this bread and this wine that we're going to drink or juice that we're going to drink, if he can be present in the waters of baptism, he can be present in our bodies as well. Our bodies are a place where God can meet us. We are not just to receive sacraments. We are called to become them. We are to become physical representation of God's love extended to the people around us, whether it's through serving our neighbors or um, going after deeper relationships with our friends or expressing grace and affirmation towards our children or through sexual intimacy with our spouse. Our entire lives are meant to be a revelation of God's love, and that is what it means to be sexually whole. Amen? Amen.